Hello and welcome to the March 3rd, 2020 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, and I'm looking forward to letting you know about what's new in the journal, beginning with articles published online first on February 25th. An important question in cancer screening is the age at which screening should stop. At some age, the modest potential harms associated with screening will outweigh the benefits because people need to live long enough to realize the latter. The authors of the first February 25th article I'll mention used Medicare data to compare deaths from breast cancer over eight years of follow-up in women aged 70 to 84 years who continued getting yearly mammograms to those who stopped screening. The researchers analyzed data for more than 1 million women in that age group who had mammography, a life expectancy of at least 10 years, and no previous cancer diagnosis. The findings from the analysis, which aimed to mimic a randomized trial, suggest that continuing breast cancer screening in women aged 70 to 74 years will reduce eight-year breast cancer mortality by one death per 1,000 women. However, continuing screening in women 75 years or older does not seem to affect eight-year breast cancer mortality. In an accompanying editorial, Dr. Otis Brawley of Johns Hopkins University writes, quote, screening for any disease, and especially for breast cancer, is a balance of benefits and risks. It requires value judgment. The physician making a clinical decision must make a recommendation for an individual patient. In the future, breast cancer screening recommendations are more likely to be tailored to the individual or personalized using objective risk simulation models, end quote. Sugar-sweetened beverage consumption is associated with adverse health outcomes. As such, public policy in some cities has focused on reducing consumption by taxing the sale of these beverages. Similar to the beverage tax in Philadelphia, the Cook County, Illinois, sweetened beverage tax applied to both sugar-sweetened and artificially sweetened beverages. Understanding if these taxes succeed in deterring purchases of the beverages is important for future policy decisions. Researchers from the University of Illinois at Chicago used UPC-level data scanned from supermarkets and grocery convenience and other types of stores in Cook County, Illinois, where the tax was implemented, and in St. Louis City and County, Missouri, where the tax was not implemented, to measure the volume of beverage sold of taxed and non-taxed beverages across product categories and sizes. The researchers found that the net impact of the tax was a 21% reduction in volume sold of tax beverages in Cook County during the time that the tax was in place after accounting for cross-border shopping. There was no significant increase in purchases of untaxed beverages. Also, there was no significant increase in the purchase of untaxed beverages in the border area, suggesting that the cross-border shopping was limited to tax avoidance. Next is an interesting case report of autobrewery syndrome in which a substantial amount of alcohol was produced by yeast fermenting sugar in a patient's urinary system, even though the patient had not consumed any alcohol. Clinicians at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center Presbyterian Hospital saw a 61-year-old woman for placement on the liver transplant wait list who had cirrhosis and poorly controlled diabetes. She was advised to seek treatment for alcohol use disorder by two liver transplant teams rather than going on the wait list because urine tests for alcohol were repeatedly positive even though she claimed not to drink any alcohol. 
The patient continued to deny alcohol use, and the clinicians noted that plasma test results for ethanol and urine test results for ethyl glucuronide and ethyl sulfate, which are metabolites of ethanol, were negative, whereas urine tests for ethanol were positive. In addition, the patient had no symptoms of alcohol intoxication. The authors tested to see if yeast colonizing in the bladder could ferment sugar to produce ethanol and found that it did. Therefore, they were able to conclude that the patient had a novel form of autobrewery syndrome and not alcohol use disorder. Chronic obstructive pulmonary disease is characterized by frequent exacerbations that are often treated with antibiotics, systemic corticosteroids, and short-acting bronchodilators. Whether all patients, especially those with mild exacerbations treated as outpatients, benefit from these treatments is uncertain. To compare the effectiveness of these treatments, researchers from the Mayo Clinic analyzed 68 randomized controlled trials that enrolled adults with COPD exacerbation treated in outpatient or inpatient settings other than intensive care units. They compared drug therapies with placebo, usual care, or other drug interventions. They found that compared with placebo or management without antibiotics, antibiotics given for 3 to 14 days were associated with improvement of exacerbation at the end of the intervention and less treatment failure. Compared with placebo in outpatients and inpatients, systemic corticosteroids given for 9 to 56 days were associated with less treatment failure at the end of the intervention, but also with a higher number of total and endocrine-related adverse events. Evidence was insufficient to compare other drug interventions. Moving on to articles published online first on March 3rd. First is a commentary from authors in the Division of Infectious Diseases and Geographic Medicine at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center that argues that lessons from SARS, MERS, and Ebola suggest that early case identification through ascertaining travel history is critical to protect both patients and those caring for them during the current COVID-19 epidemic. The authors remind us that in 2014, a patient presented to a Dallas emergency department after returning from Liberia with low-grade fever, abdominal pain, dizziness, nausea, and headache. The patient ended up having Ebola, but clinicians did not include a travel history in the patient's vitals, and the diagnosis was missed. The fact that during the first six weeks of the current coronavirus epidemic, the number of cases of COVID-19 has surpassed those of SARS and MERS raises questions about effective strategies to control the spread of infection. Available data specific to COVID-19 suggests that screening and restricting travelers may have limited impact on containment, but the authors argue that patients' vital signs are immediately powerful indicators of how urgently they need care and what path to take. A simple targeted travel history can help clinicians put symptoms of infection in context and trigger more detailed history, appropriate testing, and rapid implementation of protective measures. The commentary advocates for routinely collecting travel history as a fifth vital sign. According to the National Survey on Drug Use and Health from 2002 to 2014, the prevalence of daily cannabis use in the United States had nearly doubled. The potency of readily available cannabis has also increased, while public perception of cannabis harms has decreased. With increased use among the general population and a high prevalence of cannabis use disorder among current cannabis users, an urgent need exists for more research to identify effective pharmacologic treatments. In the next article I'll highlight, researchers from VA Portland Healthcare System 
reviewed published research to ascertain the benefits and risks of pharmacotherapies for the treatment of cannabis use disorder. Across 26 studies, the evidence was largely insufficient to determine whether medication could help treat cannabis use disorder. The researchers found low to moderate strength evidence that buspirone, cannabinoids, and SSRIs were ineffective for decreasing cannabis use or improving abstinence. Evidence was insufficient to draw conclusions about the effectiveness of all other drug classes. The evidence base was limited because there were a small number of studies investigating most drug classes, sample sizes were small, and there were very high attrition rates. They conclude that more research in this area is urgently needed. Many countries focus influenza vaccination efforts on high-risk groups such as the elderly because they bear much of the burden of influenza-related morbidity and mortality. In contrast, epidemiologic models suggest that vaccinating children, a group likely to transmit influenza, may protect high-risk groups more than vaccinating the high-risk groups themselves. Deciding between the two strategies depends on the effectiveness of the influenza vaccine in reducing hospitalizations and mortality among elderly, vulnerable persons. Researchers from the University of California, Berkeley, used an objective observational research design called regression discontinuity to determine the effectiveness of the influenza vaccine in reducing hospitalizations and mortality among elderly persons. They studied data from patient surveys and administrative records for adults aged 55 to 75 years residing in England and Wales from 2000 to 2014. They found that while turning 65 was associated with a statistically and clinically significant increase in rate of seasonal influenza vaccination, no evidence indicated that vaccination reduced hospitalizations or mortality among elderly persons. The estimates were precise enough to rule out results from many previous studies. These findings suggest that vaccination programs focusing on elderly patients may require supplemental strategies to effectively reduce morbidity and mortality in this population. The next article is a case report that describes non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in a lean woman being treated with nivolumab for skin cancer. The authors believe the immune checkpoint blockade therapy may have triggered inflammation of her subcutaneous fat. The patient was a 45-year-old woman with malignant melanoma treated with nivolumab. Towards the end of treatment, the patient had very high levels of lipids, newly developed diabetes, and a severe form of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. This was completely unexpected, particularly because the patient had lost 31 kilograms of body weight and was quite thin. Tissue biopsy of her subcutaneous fat and magnetic resonance imaging showed acquired lipodystrophy with a severe form of inflammation of her fat, which may have been triggered by the function of the checkpoint inhibitor. Intensive treatment with pioglitazone resulted in her liver fat, liver enzymes, and lipid levels returning to almost normal. Clinicians treating patients with checkpoint inhibitors should be aware of this newly identified adverse event. Most of the articles in the March 3rd print issue were initially published online first and described in previous podcasts. New material in the issue includes an in-the-clinic on fibromyalgia and an on-being-doctor essay titled Meaning at the Fingertips. Accompanying the issue on Annals.org are several Annals graphic medicine articles and the Annals on Call podcast. This podcast episode features an interesting conversation about the use of the fighter analogy for people with cancer diagnoses. That brings us to the end of this podcast. I hope you'll go to annals.org to take a closer look at some of the new material I've mentioned and return in two weeks for our next Highlights podcast. 
Thanks to Beth Jenkinson and Andrew Langman for their technical support.